So let's let's have a conversation. This is your coffee break. Hi, friends. I'm back again this week, and I have a guest that I'm really excited to introduce to you. Uh, I have with me today uh, writer Jocelyn K. Gly. She is not only a writer who writes about work and creativity in the age of distraction, but also someone whose email newsletter I've become extremely fond of. So Jocelyn, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Thank you for being here. Uh, Jocelyn has her tiny dog in the background who is eagerly anticipating the arrival of the mailman. So we might hear, is it a, a him or a her? It's a him. His name is Salty, and he lives up to the name. Oh, wonderful. So we might hear Salty barking off and on throughout, which is awesome. Um, (laughs) Jocelyn, I would love to start off. Oh, I would love to start off today's show with just a little bit about who you are and where you come from. Yeah, well, right now I am. um, The mailman is actually arriving. That's what you're hearing. So mailman. That should that should pass. <laughs> I work from home um, is what I do now, which is why uh, the mailman arrival is like a big daily event. But right now, I am um, focused full time on writing um, nonfiction, really sort of business books for creative people. I'm really focused on doing writing that helps people find more, really just more meaning and creativity in their daily lives and and at work. And so I just had a book that came out last week, Unsubscribe. And before that, so I've been kind of working on the full-time writing for about the past 18 months, I would say. Um, but prior to that, I was um, the founding editor and director of an editorial brand called 99U, which was really focused on kind of demystifying the creative process and talking to creatives and designers and entrepreneurs about how they made their ideas happen and really kind of getting into the nitty gritty of idea execution. And so um, 99U was kind of an interesting brand and then it comprised a large conference we would hold annually at Lincoln Center every year. There was a book series that I edited and then there was also um, an editorial website. So I kind of got to get my hands into a lot of different things. And before that, I was actually working at um, a startup called Flavor Pill, which is sort of a cultural media company, which oh, still yeah. exists and it's based in New York. Um, I was actually their first full-time employee back in 2002, I think it was. So yeah, I was there. And then before that, I was actually um, working at some other small kind of web design firms back when they were still sort of called like interactive agencies, yeah. um, you know, doing kind of like jack-of-all-trades stuff. So kind of the through line for me is always sort of creativity and publishing um, and, you know, kind of culture sort of through everything that I've done. That is such a lovely career. I think that a lot of people listening to the show today are sort of working on the balance between business and creativity. So I think that a lot of listeners today will come from the perspective of being trapped in a sort of business job when really what they want to be doing is working in a more creative field all day. So I love that you work in a balance between the two. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I don't know. For me, what's what's been the most interesting is that... The way that I've been able to, I think, find jobs that were able to be particularly meaningful and sort of fulfilling to me, 
um, in most instances, was getting in on the ground floor of something, kind of being in something that was in a very startup state. So I don't mean like startup, like a tech startup, but just, you know, a business in the very, very, very early stages. You know, as I was just saying, I was at Flavor Pill. I was like their first full-time employee. And then when I was at 99U, I was essentially the first employee <laughs> and the only employee for many, many years. And I think being in those roles um, really allows you to, you know, kind of, there is no role, right? You're sort of shaping the job and you're right. kind of building the company. Um, and so you're able to kind of become a part of the, of the fabric of that company and what it means. And so I think for me, that's, you know, and I, I had moments like when I left Flavor Pill, I actually went and worked at this like very corporate um, music company briefly in Los Angeles and hated it and like quit after <laughs> 10 months and moved back to New York. But what I, it was, it was a great learning process because I learned that I was just like that sort of the corporate vibe and atmosphere was really not where I felt comfortable at all, you know, and then I kind of ended up, took a little while, but kind of finding another more sort of startup type of setting. So for me, I think it's really interesting to think about, um, you know, how you can kind of get in on the ground floor of something so that you can find something where you can really shape it in ways that will kind of tie in with what's meaningful to you. But at the same time, like I'm, you know, I've just kind of recently shifted to trying to do writing full time. And I mean, I'll be completely honest. I'm not like making like a sort of like real full time living <laughs> at it yet. So I've just sort of just had my first book come out. Right. So it's kind of to be seen, um, you know, kind of how it does and, and what that means. But I had to, I, you know, I'm 39 now and I had to, I mean, I basically kind of put myself in a position where I set aside money, you know, after working for 10 years and years and years so that I could have like a year or two to try to make that transition into a full-time writer. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to make it sound, you know, like it's just sort of easy. I think people, <laughs> the kind of whole point of, of 99U when I was there was really to, you know, demystify the creative process and talk about all the stuff that people don't usually talk about. And I think it's important to talk about that stuff, not just, you know, because I think frequently you see people doing jobs and you're like, wait, but how do you actually support yourself. <laughs> you know, right. It's really not, really not obvious. So that's something I'm kind of, you know, I'm trying to figure it out for myself right now in this kind of new, like more writing focused model, how that's going to work for me. That's awesome. What made you decide to make that shift? Um, I mean, for me, it was just, you know, much like you were kind of describing, probably a lot of people who listen to your show. I mean, I just always I mean, I, I was an editor and a writer kind of in all of my jobs, both at 99U and Flavor Pill previously. So I did do some writing at work, but I'd always kind of wanted to do larger, richer writing projects. And mm -hmm. I just never had time because I'm the type of person where I'm like always 110% into <laughs> my job. Like I can't, you know, be like nine to five and then kind of forget about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I knew that I needed to, and I've done all different types of writing. You know, I did a lot of um, creative writing in the past. I did like a sort of MFA in screenwriting while I was an undergraduate studying literature. You know, it's a kind of short story screenwriting. And I never actually thought that I would end up writing nonfiction. That seemed like the last thing that I would end up writing. But, you know, kind of through my career path, I kind of ended up sort of, um, developing more expertise in that area. So that ended up kind of being a natural fit. You kind of made this shift to working from home writing. Is there anything that's just really surprised you that you did not expect about that transition? I don't know if there, I don't think there was much that I didn't expect. I think actually it was kind of learning that everything was sort of 
all of the things that they thought would be hard were just as hard. In oh. fact, as I thought they would be, if not harder. Fair. But um, that's what kind of happens when you work in a job where you study the creative process for like six years. You kind of have no ability to sort of mm. bullshit yourself any longer, which uh-huh. is kind of cool, kind of annoying. But I think for me, one of the things that was the most difficult thing about the transition was by the time I left my previous job at 99U, we had actually been acquired by Adobe. And so you know, I was working in an office with about 60 people or something like that. My team, my team itself was extremely small, only three people. But in any case, I was working in an environment, right, where there's lots of accountability, there were lots of deadlines, there mm. were lots of other people, right? And so to kind of go from that level of, you know, I think both um, socialness and collaborativeness and accountability to, you know, where you're working by yourself. And there's basically like a complete void of all of those things. Because I also didn't have, I didn't do the sort of traditional uh, route of writing a book where you write a proposal and then get the book deal. I actually wrote the entire book and then went and pursued a book deal. Um, So I was kind of really on my own. And I think that was, you know, so I had a period of, especially I think when you're in those big life transitions, I just had this, you know, this sort of period where I kept kind of being like, I knew that I was going to write a book and then I kind of had to decide, okay, well, which book was I going to write? I had like three different ideas, you know, and so I sort of had this probably three to six month period where I kept being like, okay, this is the plan. And then I would sort of get into it for like a month and then I would sort of be like, wait, is this the right plan? You know, and then I would like (laughs) kind of go into this existential cycle again and then I would like come back to it. And, you know, I think um, I I heard this phrase that was... um, you know, that kind of ended up sticking with me, which was um, plan the work and then work the plan. And so I've tried to kind of, you know, ultimately I was kind of like, okay, you're just going to have to like stick with something and stop this kind of all this like, you know, existential angst about (laughs) is this in fact the right thing to be doing. So I think, you know, that was hard kind of moving into that more isolated state. And also just you're shifting because you have to develop completely different habits, right? You have to develop habits of like, writing most of the day versus, you know, kind of working in an office environment where you're, you're really maybe not trying to focus and write for three to four hours a day. You're probably certainly not doing that. So that was a big shift. What is, uh, what is one habit that you've sort of picked up that's been good? I mean, the most important thing for me is I try to just sit down at my desk and focus in the morning for at least maybe three hours, Mm -hmm. um, without, if I can avoid it without checking my email. <laughs> yeah. Um, obviously, my new book is all about email and, you know, how much we struggle with it as a distraction. So, I th- you know, I think just developing the practice of being able to um, usually I try to write for like, you know, first 90 minutes or maybe two hours and then take a quick break and then return to writing for an hour, an hour and a half. You know, and I think that was, I mean, not surprisingly, right? That was kind of the most important basic practice to develop um, while, you know, kind of resisting all of those things like social media and email that can kind of open up sort of a Pandora's box that kind of throws you completely off track. Oh, my gosh. Yes. What does keep you focused? Like what keeps you from, you know, the Facebook and the Twitter and all that stuff? Well, for me, I mean, you know, obviously, right, being, you know, now that I'm focused on writing full time, of course, you have to cultivate, you know, your sort of social media audience and your newsletter audience. And, you you know, you kind of feel Mm -hmm. like you need to be doing these things. So when you then have a project to share with the world that, you know, hopefully someone will be listening. Um, But for me, it's, I use apps, like I use Buffer to kind of schedule all of that stuff out in advance as much as possible so that I can kind of sit down for whatever two hours, one day a week and kind of plan out, you know, all of my Twitter stuff and, 
you know, any Facebook stuff and most of those, you know, most of those other bits and pieces. So I don't have the excuse of saying like, oh, I need to be on Twitter for <laughs> or something like that. And then, and then kind of using that, um, you know, if I do want to check social media, just using it as sort of a, a reward during breaks rather than, you know, something that I'm just kind of doing constantly while I'm trying to work. That's a trap that is so easy to fall into. It really is. Kind of speaking of your book, I would love to hear more about it. And I would also like to ask about, I follow you on Instagram and Twitter and such. And I've seen marketing for your book has all these duck figures. And I'm very <laughs> curious about this. Yeah, well, so the we'll get to the illustrations in a moment. I mean, the book, <laughs> which is called, um, so it's called Unsubscribe, um, How to Kill Email Anxiety, Avoid Distractions and Get Real Work Done. And, you know, I said earlier that kind of all of the you know work and writing that I've been doing is really focused on kind of helping people find more meaning and creativity in their daily work. And right now, you know, I, we're living in this moment where there's so many apps and tools and different forms of technology that are competing for our attention on a daily basis. Um, but when you look at the actual data and you think about what is still, you know, kind of the number one biggest distraction that people have at work, it's still email by far. You know, it's something like the average person maybe checks their email like 11 times an hour, sends and oh receives 122 messages a day, and spends about like 28% of their total work week on email. The Washington Post actually recently published this um, really depressing email calculator in which you could kind of calculate like how much of your career you would spend on email if, if you were spending a lot of your, you know, sort of at the top end of the amount of time that people spend on email. And it was, you know, I think it was like 47,000 hours that you could oh potentially spend over the course of your entire career on email. And in any case, right, so it's a huge distraction for people. And so I was really curious to look at on the on the one hand like the psychology behind that like why is email so addictive and kind of dig into some of the science behind that and then um from there then kind of move into looking at okay well like how can we actually put email back sort of back in its place and let go of this idea of inbox zero and think about what are your real creative priorities and what are the kind of habits and boundaries that you can, you know, set up so that you can make sure that you're kind of, you know, limiting the amount of time and energy you spend on email so you have more time for meaningful work. And then kind of the last section of the book is like really tactical um, kind of tips and strategies for, you know, spending less time on email, but also writing emails that will kind of get people to pay attention and respond in a world where everyone is busy and attention is scarce. Mm, yes. So it's kind of this, it, it kind of tackles email at a bunch of different levels. So now I want to hear about the ducks. Oh, the ducks. Yes. Thank <laughs> you. I was like, I knew I left something out. So, well, so the book itself, um, it's very similar. You have the um, previous 99 ebooks that, um, that I did, you know, manage your day to day being yes. maybe an example of one. And, and those books are very, right, like a sort of very small format. Um, they were deliberately designed to be very visually appealing and also to be kind of set up in a way that feels very digestible and also very kind of compelling for a creative audience. So it, all of that was kind of deliberate in the way that we, you know, that we designed the books and the way that I edited them and, and all of those bits and pieces. And so um, but one of the things I was never able to do was I always wanted to do books with illustrations. And uh -huh. so this one, particularly, you know, if you think about email, right, it's like a really distasteful topic. It's like something we all struggle with, but it, 
it's not something that you really want to spend time thinking about. <laughs> yes. Um, so, you know, part of it was also kind of making um, the topic feel a bit more approachable and a bit more fun. And so I um, recruited this um, amazing Portuguese illustrator who I actually discovered on Behance, which is, you know, the parent company of 99U. Yeah. And so we kind of collaborated, um, you know, over many, many miles and many hours and kind of developed this strange, um, you know, all of the figures are based on this sort of weird, like kind of duck individual <laughs> and, you know, just did a series of really kind of fun, quirky, kind of zany illustrations that appear throughout the book. So it's like a very um, small format kind of fun design book. So it kind of, you know, hopefully draws people in and, and kind of makes it a bit more fun to deal with a topic that's, you know, I think very unpleasant for many people. I love that. I love the idea of making it fun. Even though I'm sure that the book itself is super informative and interesting and, you know, very valuable to people as well. I love I love that you decided to do that. That's really cool. I love the work that you did with 99U. I love just looking back through your career. You've been, I think, a mentor, even maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally to a lot of people. Do you have um, an, do you have your own mentor that you kind of look to? You know, it's funny. Um, I think the whole, I actually think the whole subject matter of mentors is kind of an interesting one. I, you know, cause I frequently talk to people or, you know, read advice or all types of different things that are sort of like, Oh, I gotta, you know, where people are just like, I gotta find a mentor. Like that's going to be life changing. Um, <laughs> right. No. Yeah. Tell and me more. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I, I think that for me, certainly I, I absolutely have had mentors. I think when I had those relationships, I never in the moment when the relationship was sort of unfolding, I never really recognized that that person was a mentor. You know, I never like had them in that sort of role at the yes. time, if that makes sense. So yes. I would say Scott Belsky, who was one of the um, founders of 99U and Behance, you know, was a great mentor for me, someone who um, I learned a ton from over the years. He's a super smart, um, incredibly organized very thoughtful person. Um, and so we worked together, um, you know, initially, like our, the very beginning of our relationship was actually me helping him as sort of a first line editor on his book, Making Ideas Happen, and then kind of launching 99U from there and working together on that. So we were close colleagues for many, many years, and I learned a ton from him. At the same time, I learned a lot from the other co-founder um, of Behance, Matthias Correa, who's the head designer, um, and we would we collaborated on the design of the 99U books, as well as about a billion pieces of different conference material for the conference <laughs> over the years, like so many, you know, the website, so many things, you know, but at the same time, I think, um, you know, one of my, you know, colleagues and one of my employees, Sean Blanda, who later took over 99U for me, was also kind of a mentor for me. And I think, so to me, like kind of the interesting concept about mentors is that I think that, you know, if you're just looking for that kind of one end all be all mentor, I think, I think some people find that, but I think it's pretty rare. Mm. Um, you know, I think that it's much more likely that you can find mentors kind of everywhere you look, you know, like people who are younger than you, people who you work alongside with, and also people that you work under, you know, I think there's things to be learned from all of those different people. And so I think, you know, to me, the idea of, of finding that sort of one person, almost like that kind of like silver bullet to your like yes. professional growth is a bit unrealistic and also just kind of not taking stock of all of the amazing people who are probably already around you and who you can learn things from. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I think specifically thinking about the idea of how much you can learn from even, you know, say your interns or colleagues who are younger than you, especially since we now live in this world where technology is such a prevalent part of how we all do our jobs, you know, there are kind of constantly people who are coming up under you who know more than you about certain things, just because they were, you know, maybe more native to whatever types of technologies that you're trying to use. Um, so I think it's interesting to think about how you can kind of take things away from those relationships as well. Actually, I have several mentors myself, and I have one that I look to for writing, and I have one that I look to for business decisions. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I do, I have one or two that are younger than me who I look to for, like you said, technology stuff. I look at them for style help, like just all sorts of things. <laughs> it's just so nice to have this community of helpful people around you. So I, I love that you said that about not having one mentor as a silver bullet, because I think you're right. I think it is really rare. Well, yeah, and I think it's kind of the same as, you know, sort of finding a, a calling, you know, mm-hmm. you're sort of it puts you in this sort of passive position, like you're, you're waiting for someone's approval or someone's guidance or some lightning bolt from above to sort of, you know, validate like what you're doing or make it easier to sort of be quite confident in the direction that you're going. Right. But I think that much more often what happens is, you know, the sort of meaning unfolds through mastery, you know, and as you get better at something as you develop a deeper relationship with whatever it is, it actually becomes more meaningful to you. You know, and that was very true for me, say with 99U, like I wasn't really, I wouldn't have said, oh, I'm really passionate about, you know, necessarily, I was always passionate about creativity, certainly, but I wouldn't have said, oh, I'm really passionate about like sort of productivity and like careers necessarily. But through kind of focusing on that, i did end up becoming very passionate about it. And it did become like very deeply meaningful to me. And so I think, you know, there's sort of that notion that you are just sort of going to find your passion and, and pursue it, you know, and I think a lot of times that it sort of unfolds, in fact, as you're pursuing something rather than, you know, in the opposite way. I've actually been having some conversations with friends lately who say, you know, the big advice out there is to find your passion, find your passion. And I've had a lot of friends who said, I don't know what my passion is. And these people also feel like they're kind of stuck in their corporate jobs and they should be following their passion. What would your advice be for them? Well, you know, I think in those cases, I guess the kind of easiest way to, you know, start to explore that is to, um, you know, maybe do volunteer work or pro bono work that kind of leverages your skills, but maybe in a different type of area. Because I think there's a lot of um, sort of fetishization, that's a really hard word to say out loud. (laughs) Um, People fetishize the idea that you can make some kind of big mid-career transition, like, you know, like you're a stockbroker and you decide, I don't know, you want to be a filmmaker, right? Right. And that, that, that that can be done and like quite gracefully, you know, I think you certainly can do that, but I think you certainly shouldn't, you know, kind of underestimate the difficulty of doing that. And I do think that, you know, what it's more likely to be successful to make that type of change if you're, you can kind of leverage the expertise that you already have, but maybe in a new way. So, you know, maybe in terms of exploring that, you know, volunteering or or kind of um, working on, you know, freelance or pro bono projects that kind of cast your, your current expertise, but in like maybe a new light or something that, you know, also allows you to learn new things. Um, seems to me like kind of a more viable way, especially if you just kind of want to dip your toe in the water and start to see like, oh, is this more interesting to me or, or maybe this, you know, as opposed to trying to come up with some grand scheme where you just like quit your job and plunge into something new. I know that throughout your career, you've worked with writing and editing. 
What is your favorite thing about writing? Oh, my favorite thing about writing. I mean, I think, you know, writing is a way of thinking, right? Or figuring out what you think or clarifying your thoughts. So I guess that's my, you know, favorite thing about it. I think that, you know, we have this notion sort of that you often go into a writing project, like sort of already knowing exactly what you think about it. Um, And I think that often happens, actually, you kind of do think that you know what you think about something. (laughs) Um, But you know, in in through the writing process, and certainly if you're trying to write something longer, you know, sort of the the logic and the clarity and the density of whatever argument you're trying to make gets kind of tested through the writing process, right? And you kind Mm of, you know, you kind of see where you're wrong, or where your argument was weak, or where you need to do more research, or maybe where you came to one conclusion, but need to revise that conclusion. And so I think I guess that's the most interesting part of it is that it really, the process of writing really clarifies your thinking. Boy, I like that. I think you're the first person who's described that as their favorite part of writing. So thank you for that. <laughs> what do most people it. say? Out of um, so surprising themselves or when characters sort of start to come to life. So I wonder if that's something mm. for you that's unique to nonfiction. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, and I, I used to do um, much more creative writing. But yeah, the idea, whenever writers talk about that, and I'm a huge fiction reader, much more so than nonfiction, whenever they talk about characters surprising them, I'm always kind of like, really? (laughs) How does that work? But I suppose it's the same thing, right? But it's just the same thing as sort of when you surprise yourself with the uh, conclusions that you come to, uh, which were maybe a little bit different than what you thought they would be when you set out. Right, exactly. You know, you've worked so long in the field of creativity. What has been your biggest takeaway about creativity? I think the biggest takeaway is that nobody knows what the hell they're doing, which is sort (laughs) of a very comforting takeaway. It is. Um, I really loved um, at the end of um, the third book we did in the 99 News series, um, Make Your Mark, which is really, you know, sort of focused on building a small business and kind of thinking entrepreneurial entrepreneurially. Seth Godin wrote an essay and he says, you know, if you wait until you're ready, it's almost certainly too late. And I think that has kind of been a a through line, right? Because all of, you know, I've done so many interviews with um, different creatives and designers and entrepreneurs or heard, you know, so many talks that, um, you know, that we curated for the conference. And, you know, I think all of those, all of those have very much been about the fact that, those people just didn't know what they were doing. You know, they just kind of had the confidence to, you know, get up every day and take, you know, kind of take a few more steps. One of my favorite talks was by um, Sebastian Thrun, who is uh, one of the founders of Udacity, the hmm. online moots um, company, and also um, behind Google X, um, you know, which made Google Glass and the, and the self-driving car. And he gave a talk. And one of the things that he was talking, he was sort of comparing creativity or, or any kind of innovation really to climbing a mountain, um, climbing a mountain that no one has climbed before. Hmm. And, you know, he was saying, you know, if you're climbing a mountain that no one's climbed before, there's not a map. And so you don't know how to get to the top and you kind of see the peak and you need to get know where you're going, but you're not really sure how to get up the mountain. And so you, you know, take some wrong turns, but then you kind of, okay, that was the wrong way. And then you circle back and, um, you know, it's really just this process of taking 10,000 steps and eventually you're going to get to the top, but there's never really nothing worth worthwhile in life comes with instructions. Mm. And I, and I, I like to tie that in with, you said one of your favorite parts about writing is figuring it out as you go. I think that's when we're sort of experimenting with things, uh, we, we get realizations and that becomes maybe some of our most valuable work. 
yeah, is through 100%. that pioneering. Yeah. What's next for you? Well, I have um, definitely released one more book that I want to write right now, um, which will be another nonfiction book. And it's really going to be focused on this idea of sort of mindful productivity, which sounds like a slightly weird phrase. Ooh, yeah. But I think that you know, you, you've probably read some of the writing on my blog. I think one of the things that you might have noticed I've been thinking a lot about is I think when we're, you know, we're now just in this world where we're all overloaded and over busy and really just, you know, inundated with kind of updates and notifications and requests constantly. And I think that we really need to sort of shift from, you know, we're kind of in this model of like getting things done, you know, feeling like we just needed to sort of be busy and be processing things in order to be productive and in order to be effective. But I think that now, in many ways, productivity is really becoming about what you don't do, um, you know, about setting boundaries and about mm. saying no and about figuring out how to filter out the noise. I think that that's really kind of the skill set that's really going to be a big competitive advantage for people in the future. So the, you know, the kind of new book, the next book that I'm working on is really going to be kind of focused on, well, so what are those kind of you know, what's a way that we can kind of be productive, be effective, but do it in a way that is really sustainable. You know, we're not going to be burnt out and completely spent and, you know, five years from now and 10 years from now, how can we work in a way where we're resting and refueling along the journey? I cannot wait to read this book. I know you haven't even like probably started <laughs> outlining it, but yes. <laughs> that'll be done. Oh. Jocelyn, thank you so much for being on the show today. I am just, I just feel so honored to be able to host you. To all my listeners, I will have links to Jocelyn's presence on all sorts of different social media here for you. I'll have a link to her website and to her newest book, Unsubscribe. So Jocelyn, thank you so much for your presence today. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. I'm just so excited to have you. Oh, it's such a pleasure to chat with you, Sarah. Thanks so much. Thank you. You have a great evening and I will be in touch. Mm -hmm.